Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Hello, and welcome to Reimagining Motion, a podcast from the High Volume Transport Applied Research Program, which is undertaking research into the complex and interrelated issues of sustainable transport across Africa and South Asia. The High Volume Transport Applied Research Program, or short HVT, is an 18 million pound investment by the UK Foreign, Commonwealth, and Development Office, FCDO. I'm Holger Dugman, your host for today's session. To help us further explore these issues, I will be speaking with Romanos Opio from Stockholm Environmental Institute. Romanos is a program leader for sustainable urbanization at SEA Africa. His area of expertise is transport planning and urban sustainability, and he holds a PhD in urban and regional planning from the University of Nairobi, Kenya. The work of the Stockholm Environmental Institute includes HVT-funded projects, such as an assessment of the needs of transport stakeholders, focusing on inclusive climate-resilient transport in Africa. And the second study, which we also will talk today about, is a guidelines for practitioner, particularly looking into participatory approaches for inclusive climate-resilient transport. All of these and other resources can be found in the description of the podcast. So, Romanus, great to see you. Welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm fine, Holger. Thank you for inviting me to this podcast. Great to have you. Thanks for that. So let's let's directly get started. As I mentioned, so you have done a lot of work around also inclusiveness and resilience. And climate change has obviously a significant impact on infrastructure, vehicle and mobility, both in how to deal with extreme weather events conditions and how to change transport to reduce carbon emission. These changes are impacting LMICs hardest of all, and it's then the disadvantaged members of those countries who feel the brunt the most. So when we talk about transition to low carbon transport in the African cities, where your work, Romanos, what you say is that right now there's a risk for that transition to leave the most disadvantaged behind? Yes, I, I agree that uh, there's a, a great risk uh, of uh, leaving the most disadvantaged behind because of uh, the transition which relies on more of technology. And we had, if you look at the, the technology capacity or, or, or status of most of the low and middle income countries, actually, they are, they are, they are there's a lot of risk in terms of this transition. So when you talk about this, like technological disadvantages, can you give us an example? Well, uh, when you look at uh, e-mobility, electricity mobility, so if you look at the, in terms of the power distribution and capacity of most of, our, of most of these African cities, you find they are not well prepared to handle this or, or maybe to, if you look at the distribution of electricity in most of our cities and in most of African cities, we find it's still, uh, it's still inadequate to handle this form of, of transition. But from the infrastructure perspective, I think there's a, a good uh, opportunity of expanding in things like the what are green-friendly transport infrastructure like pedestrian paths and cycling lanes. So to that extent, there's a, a good opportunity to do that, yeah. When you when you talk about also the infrastructure part and you talk particularly on walking and cycling, but what are the challenges also that groups such as women, older people, young people, and persons with disabilities are facing as they try to move around in African cities? There are two major challenges. Uh, one 
is first either lack or inadequate uh, transport infrastructure to support their mobility. And secondly, the kind of services, uh, the kind of uh, services which enhances this kind of mobility. For example, in most of African cities, we have a public transport services, which is actually being run by private sector, not public, uh, public sector. And most of these particular mobility services are not friendly to women, older people or young people in terms of how they, they meet their mobility needs. And especially if you look at this with reference to their regular destination, either people use these services to go to work or go to education for education facilities or maybe generally livelihood. You find most of these transport services are not responsive to their local mobility needs. And this is also being worsened by the kind of climatic conditions which are times we face, where you find during excess rainfall, we have flooding where people cannot even move, people cannot walk. It becomes uh, expensive to use a public transport service because of the, of the, of the flooding condition. And at times when it's excess heat, walking becomes a problem in these particular areas because we don't have supportive infrastructure for that. You, you really describe well so the challenges and also describe also the uh, role also of public transportation, but, but also the, the impact also of climate change in terms of flooding. Do you feel, and you are a transport and urban planner so yourself, uh, do you think transport planners and urban uh, planners and decision makers are aware of these challenges and do they know how to cater for the needs of all parts of the communities they serve? Well, uh, from, uh, from uh, my experience and also our interaction during our HVT studies, we found that basically most transport planners and decision makers are fairly aware of the challenges and even they they really know that this thing is supposed to be done but at times in terms of priorities when the budget are being approved you find that that will not becomes a priority maybe something like food security could become more urgent and you find out the citizens are not the citizens mobility are not factored in in that but uh, another issue which i think which also limits the decision makers capacity to embrace this is the issue of data at times we don't have uh, adequate data which can inform how we are able to to address these particular challenges so that becomes a challenge but in terms of awareness they are fairly aware in terms of what what is happening and what is actually required so it's more about it's not about awareness it's about prioritization and also having also the right data and tools and you have done some work around that which we'll talk um, a little bit later so about that as we focus with our podcast on transport what are the key issues related to transport when it comes to resilience and also how you would see also the importance of linking also resilience with inclusiveness well, I think uh, those are two, uh, just to break it, maybe to two, like looking from the, from the transport perspective in terms of uh, the key issues there, I think to me, looking at the African cities and maybe African continent, I think there are three aspects which we need to package in terms of understanding the transportation before bringing the inclusiveness. Yeah? I think first we need to look at the hardware, the hardware situation, which is the infrastructure. What is the status of most of our African transport infrastructure? It's very important to package that as one of the elements. Then the second element, which also becomes important, is to appreciate the, soft, the software component. Yeah? And here, the software component, this is where the issue of services becomes important. The practical transport services. What is the, like the public transport service? How, what is the condition for most of Africa? So that's the second element. The third element, I think, which is important as we look at the transport before we bring the inclusiveness, is the issue of the facilitator. And here, the facilitator, I'm looking at the issue of the governance, issue of policy, 
and how they are at short management. So when you look at this, it, it helps us to look at how inclusiveness is it from the hardware perspective and also how inclusive or even the resilience from the software and also how, how resilient or inclusiveness from the facilitators, from the governance and others. I think this gives us a very good uh, entry point to know where do we need interventions to make this uh, transport infrastructure to be inclusive and also to be resilient. I think to me that becomes very important. Saying that really like her, so your um, your three prong approach: hardware, software, facilitation, um, and and you said we we need also to mainstreamers that um, to really also make it inclusive. Can you give some some examples? So what what are so like key options also for really also makers? So hardware, software, and facilitation more inclusive. Yeah, I think the example first in the issue of making hardware inclusive and also resilient, first you look at the issue of the standards. Yeah? What kind of standards are, are we using? Because for a very long time, most of the transport and the road transport, the focus has been the motorway. There's a literally attention in terms of how you link the motorway with the non-motorized transport yeah? in terms of people who cycle and so people who walk. So. That has been a, a problem, but I think there are a lot of changes. We have where we had uh, missing links between where we have just provision, provision of motorway minus, uh, minus the non-motorized tra transport. This is really changing. We have now the retrofitting projects where most of the road agencies are now bringing in uh, an added angle of where you they are providing non-motorized transport infrastructure for walking and cycling, which, which is actually addressing the aspect of, of inclusivity where the non-motorized transport users are now being, 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 being included as part of planning for, for transport, uh, transport infrastructure. The second way you look at the, uh, from the software in terms of services, there, now there's a lot of support of having most of our public transport services functional. And we are now looking at the concept of transport or like our transport-oriented development. How do we enhance mobility in this particular city so that we are able to, to make sure that people are able to move with ease and also, also in, a, in an integrated manner. And also if you look at the, facil the facilitation perspective, we have a lot of interest, most of the cities like I know, like Nairobi and uh, Nairobi in Kenya and uh, Kampala in Uganda, they have now integrated transport policy just to ensure that transport sector is integrated in terms of the modes, in terms of the institutions, so that you don't have a lot of conflict in terms of how these are provided. So there's a lot of attempt and also progress in most of the, our cities to address, to address this. So moving a little bit towards this role of participation and in the introduction, so I mentioned that you work with colleagues on a guideline for practitioners looking into participatory approaches. Tell us a little bit more about first is the HVT study. What was also the motivation also for, for, for that and probably also highlight some of the work you did? Our work with the HVT was, uh, was critical in terms of looking at two aspects. Uh, one, the issue of inclusivity in terms of how do we enhance inclusivity when providing transport infrastructure. The second uh, concern was how to, to make our transport infrastructure more resilience to harsh climatic conditions. Yeah? But one of the centerpieces of this particular work is the approach which is adopted in terms of how do you make participatory approaches as one way of engaging various actors within the, within the transport infrastructure. Because uh, you find that in most cases, if you don't 
engage participatory framework, especially of the target user, we find that most of these transport infrastructure end up missing the local context of the mobility needs of the target users. For example, if the target users are the, are the elderly or they are women or their children, you find if their voices are not included in the design and even the conceptualization of this infrastructure, you find that they end up not meeting their mobility needs. So you find you have a transport infrastructure which actually inhibit mobility instead of facilitating mobility. So that became that became very important in terms of the approaches uh, using the participatory approaches to include voices which are normally missed out when we are designing most of this transport infrastructure. But also at times also the voices of the experts in terms of how do they inform the design. So this gave uh, a room to see how do you bring these voices together to ensure that uh, the transport infrastructure provided first they embrace and understand the mobility needs of various users. And secondly, they also benefit from the technical expertise of the transport planners and the decision makers. Thanks a lot for that, Romanos. I, I read also the two studies you, you did. You came up with a lot of different techniques. Usually it's like a formal participation is, is less creative. So what, what is like the, the standard on participatory approaches currently is in Kenya? Is there law? And what will be the difference there? So using and applying your guidance? Yeah, thanks. I think uh, for most of the... If you look at the most of the constitutional provision, most of these African countries, they are trying to encourage participation, but they don't uh, define actually how to conduct participation. So the guidance framework helps us to, to at least give some ways of doing this, uh, of how do you engage these people in, in an ineffective manner, so that it's not just rubber stamping where people, people give their views as a conditionality to meet constitutional needs, but not uh, to influence decision makers. So... In terms of uh, looking how do we approach the, the participation framework, one, we look at what is the intention because the approach, uh, when you look at the guidance framework which we, we developed, we have something called a decision tree, decision-making tree, which will guide you in terms of what kind of approach will be useful for a particular situation because you cannot have a generic framework which can fit all situations. So depending on the decision tree, you look at, for example, what do you want to achieve? For example, do you want to achieve consensus? Then we have a, a perspective method uh, called a Delphi method, which will help you to develop consensus among different players. And this uh, Delphi method becomes very important, especially when you're dealing with people who are professional at technical level, where you, you expose them to a question and, and slowly you develop, you do iterative method where they, you get their, you get the answers and then go back to them till when you develop, uh, you get your higher concerns. So that becomes very important that. But at times you also just want to do scenario and visioning so that people are able to reflect in terms of what they want to achieve. So that also will require certain forms of, or certain class or category of or participatory framework. And here you have things like participatory mapping or even placemaking activities where you can make people to look at the 3D of an area and decide on what needs to be done and where. Because they, it's understood that they understand the topography and the context of that particular area. Then they're able now to, to determine what kind of appropriate intervention is required. So that becomes very important at that particular phase. Also in the in the decision tree, we had a third category of monitoring and evaluation. After achieving this, how do you know that you've achieved your goal? So, here you can also use digital stories and participatory mapping for people just to give reflection in terms of how those interventions become. So those are the parameters of participatory. So it's done, it's done in a very, in a very systematic manner where the goal of your participation 
is related to what you want to achieve. So that's how we went and that's how we also worked on the, on the guidance framework. Again, congratulations on the report. I hope it will be used used a lot. I, I found it very helpful to to learn more about it, so like the different options. And uh, as you said, so with the decision tree for so like the planners for decision makers move towards the right technique, and you listed quite a lot and gave us a really good example. So, what what is your what is your favorite one? What is your favorite technique? And what is your favorite example in the report or outside the report? I think I think for for both the report and, and maybe one which the one I've I've really used the participatory mapping and participatory mapping is a very powerful tool because uh, you can use it even in a focus discussion where you you print a map maybe a, an A zero or A one map and then you put at the center. And uh, you can discuss issue. For example, if you want to map up uh, the accidents hotspot, then the community or uh, maybe children, school-going children, they are able to draw where they feel they, they have a problem. Even people living with disability, you are able to engage them and giving them up. They are able to detail where they think they have problems in terms of, uh, in terms of uh, when they want to cross or where they think there are a lot of accidents. So you are able to, to map out a hotspot at the same time on that map, you can also map out solutions in terms of what needs to be done at which a different point. And see, these are location specific because they're not just uh, mapping something where they don't know, but they look at geographical space and they're able to define what needs to become. So I find it's a more powerful and also less technical people are able to live in space and able to identify appropriate methodology on how to do this. So where did you apply this or where are good examples of this participatory mapping? Yeah, for for our study, we are, we applied it like in Lusaka, where we we interviewed the the school children and asked them where they feel it's comfortable to to cross, and they told us, and even go that the reasons why they they felt those places were were not safe crossing points, and uh, this with the with collaboration with the Lusaka City Council, they managed to come up with a bump. Uh, a speed calming measures to ensure that when the vehicles approach there, they're able to slow down and people are able to cross. So I find it uh, very impactful. Also in Nairobi, we did that uh, when we were doing, there's a street um, within a CBD called Duli Avenue. Now a car free zone where we did a, a placemaking activities where they defined what needs to be done and how do you reduce traffic, motorized traffic in that particular area. And uh, it has changed that place and people are now shopping. They are not, uh, they're not bothered in terms of vehicles. They can do things. And, uh, and even the shopkeepers uh, who are earlier are protesting thought that they lose business. They're now appreciating because now people are able to walk freely and shop without, with a lot of ease. So it's a powerful tool of uh, framing people's mind and also for guiding people in terms of what kind of intervention is required. So you you didn't do just the mapping, but you saw so and the people who saw the successor of that activity. Is that important? That's very important because people are able to apply it, and also they are able now, even especially the the decision makers and the transport planner, they are able now to to use it to convince even the the, the government in terms of allocating uh, allocating resources for that particular place. 
Thanks. And again, so I would recommend like the listeners who look into so that study and other workers are from Romanus, which you find uh, in the descriptions of the podcast. Uh, almost coming also to the end, uh, we talked about the challenges, the opportunities, applying or participatory approaches. We gave us good examples, but how we bring these activities towards inclusive, resilient transport really so to scale. So what from your perspective is needed that a resilient system is really developed in uh, places in Africa and particularly in, in, in Kenya where you work? There are two ways of how we can scale up this. Yeah? First, we can um, I like uh, this concept of having champions, creating champions. Yeah? The champions here can be maybe a group of disadvantaged group who come together to drive an agenda and using these particular tools to engage with the policy makers and decision makers. So I think it's an opportunity which can be done at different level from very local level, like a neighborhood or a community level. You can have a community of champions of whether people live in disability or of school children or of the elderly group organization. We can, we can have that. If you can have the, this particular community of champions, it can go from very local to even to the city level, city scale, and even to the country. A national scale, and you never know, even at regional level. So I think that having those community champions becomes very important in terms of how they can engage. Because the, we have participatory uh, room in most of our constitution in this in this part of the world. Uh, let me say East Africa. But at times the howness, how do you do it, becomes very important. So I, I think this uh, participatory framework, as uh, provided in the guidance framework, can give us an opportunity to create this. Uh, community of champions as users. Secondly, I think uh, from the inclusiveness perspective, but also for the resilience perspective, I think uh, it would be important also to look at uh, the experts. Huh? Here we have the transport player, transport planners. We also have uh, the government officials and others. Huh? It's important also to embrace the issue of data because data is also important because most of the resilience uh, perspective are missed out because they're not data driven. So it's not based on the topographical analysis or also looking at the weather pattern, which are very important in terms of how you address the, the, the resilience and also factoring the issue like urban heat island and also the issue of the flooding. Uh, so it becomes important to embrace these two that we have at local level or at community level, we have the community of champions to engage, use this framework to, to engage the decision makers and the, and the policy makers. But at the, at the other end, you also have the, the transport planners to engage in that so that if we refuse these two, then we are able to address first the mobility needs of the of the various actors who are also who can also be disadvantaged, and secondly, using the technical expertise and the data set, we are also able to address the issue of the of the resilience because that will factor in the technical aspect, the rainfall pattern, the climatic condition of a of a period of time, the topographical aspect, so that we have that the transport infrastructure we are providing is resilient, but also it's inclusive based on how we end. So what is important in terms of this, uh, Olga, is that we must have a honest, inclusive approach where People are disadvantaged, don't just participate for the sake of it, but they participate to influence the decision and to inform decision. So if you have this and you also have the data perspective, then I think we are likely to provide more responsive transport infrastructure in Africa cities. 
Thank you, Romanos. That was fantastic. That was I, I really enjoyed talking to you, learning about your work there, but particularly when you said we need, in fact, like the bottom up, we need the inclusiveness of disadvantaged group, but taking risks as a recommendation and outcome series. We need committed decision makers and we have to have better knowledge and better data to inform us of those, those processes. And I hope that uh, you will continue so your work there and um, many other others uh, will also follow. With that, I'd like to uh, thank you very much. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you, Holger. Thank you for your time and thank you for those engaging questions and discussion. Thank you. So thank you for listening to this episode. Uh, if you'd like to find out more about the work of our guests and any of the resources, please check out the links in the description. I always encourage you to listen to the other episodes in the series where we explore a variety of other topics related to climate change and transport. Also, you can leave us a rating, hopefully a good one, and a review. It really helps others find our podcast. If you'd like to learn more about the work of the High Volume Transport, you can check out our website at transport-links.com or follow us on Twitter at transport underscore links or on LinkedIn at High Volume Transport Applied Research Program. The High Volume Transport Applied Research Program, HVT, is an £18 million investment by the UK Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office, FCDO. The program's new body of research aims to help inform decisions of policymakers in low-income countries and make road and rail transport greener, safe and more accessible and affordable. My name is Holger Dogman and you have been listening to Reimagining Motion. Thank you. Stay and travel safe wherever you are. Goodbye and auf Wiedersehen.